Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Game Art Talk podcast. Wayne Wong Chong is my guest today. Hey, how are you? Hello, Christoph. Nice to meet you. So you live currently in Vancouver and are a principal technical artist for Pixelmatic, right? Uh, no, I live in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, right now I'm actually director of art at Pixelmatic, but in the past I did uh, over 15 years of tech art, and I finished uh, uh, a lot of my work at Relic as uh, director of tech art. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys all today about my journey from artists when I first got in the industry to tech art all the way through to the highest level at director level and then crossing over into director of art um, and art direction. Okay, so let's jump right into the beginnings. Where did you start your career and when? Uh, so I actually started uh, going to school way back for architecture. I never thought it was possible to actually get into video games like uh, when we're young we always play games but we we never think that it's that's the dream would come true right and there wasn't really any avenues back then that were visible of how you would get into games so traditionally i just went and used my art skills the best i could in construction and architecture uh, as i went through uh, construction and architecture i got introduced to autocad and 3d And I found it super fascinating. Um, and some of my friends finished that course and then went into digital arts and animation. And one of them just said, hey, you know what? You should, you'd be really good at this. You should just rather just switch over. And I'm like, okay. So then I ended up taking uh, like programming and uh, went to Vancouver Film School. And I graduated from Vancouver Film School and there I went into 3D animation. Uh, I was applying for games jobs, but um, I ended up accepting a job at a television studio called Mainframe Entertainment, who is famous for making uh, the cult classic reboot, as well as um, uh, one of the early iterations of Sony Spider-Man, uh, with, along with a bunch of other titles. Uh, and there I kind of learned the ropes of 3D, and then I eventually uh, left there into video games, which was at EA. Um, from EA, um, I, I learned a lot about early Xbox, um, and PlayStation development and what it meant to be a tech artist. That was my first tech art job. Uh, and then uh, in between uh, Relic and EA, I actually did a small film stint uh, where I learned even more about pipelines and Maya. Uh, and then I spent the longest amount of time at Relic and worked on a various number of prototypes uh, from uh, anywhere for uh, Warhammer, to Homeworld, uh, Company of Heroes, and then many of their RTSs after that. Uh, and then I, I left there just as uh, Age of Empires IV was mid-production. Okay, thanks. So maybe you can give us a time frame when this all happened? Yeah, so um, I left about uh, one and a half years ago, and then I re-entered back into the industry after... Uh, I had to take a break uh, from my family uh, and I joined Pixelmatic uh, with a different position, getting back to my love for art as director of art. But um, part of the reason why they approached me and uh, they, they found my skills so uh, interesting is that with the deep technical art background, it was really beneficial for the types of games that they were making, which is... Um, Infinite Fleet, and Infinite Fleet is a large uh, MMO uh, based in uh, a retro-inspired 
anime universe where you have ships and you explore the universe through procedural space and uh, combat an alien enemy force. But um, part of the challenge with their game is obviously like how you could make it run and how you could have uh, high quality as well as uh, create the kind of world that the players want to continue to explore and engage. And that's kind of right up my alley from my experiences. Okay, so you said you kind of transitioned from being a creative art person to more of a tech art. What was the reason why you did like change your yeah your career in that case? Uh, I changed my career after my first five years in the industry uh, during during the television stages. I was always really interested in character art. Um, I, I loved. Uh, creating the characters and eventually I got so deep into enjoying seeing my creations go from the beginning of the pipeline to the end of the pipeline that I started to learn more about rigging in those early days of Maya and um, Soft Image back then and 3ds Max. Um, and so as I started to go deeper and deeper into the workflows to see my thing hit the screen essentially, I would learn about rigging, I would learn about animation, I would try to make my day-to-day -day workflow smoother and re reduce the amount of repeated steps. And so that just naturally transitioned me into what they call the character TD, or what you would find today in the industry is character or creature um, TD uh, for, fil for film. And um, so that's kind of like how I got really interested in more the technical side. And as I got better on the technical side, Uh, more people just kept coming to me to solve problems. So that's how kind of I transitioned into uh, more of a technical director role. And then I just got more and more exposure to that uh, as, I, as I changed jobs, right? Um, it started to really uh, help me in terms of stability for uh, work. But more, more importantly, I, I really started to see the benefit of helping others and enabling projects to be successful through being more efficient. Um, so when I got to EA, I learned even more about that, but as it's applied to video games, because um, there's a completely different rule set when you're working in films and television versus video games, there's different limitations. Okay, can, can you give us a, a, maybe a short list of limitations that come especially on the tech art side? Uh, so on the tech art side for games, it's it's largely intertwined with what the art vision is for the game. And sometimes you might actually be influenced about what art direction you take because of the limitations. But generally, like we're talking about the amount of um, units on screen, the amount of detail that the models have, uh, and at any given time, how much uh, we're actually needing to render and have interactive, as well as including a number of physics objects and uh, any types of post-processing filtering on rendering. So all of these you kind of need to take into account when you're starting to um, visualize or create a visual target for a game that you're making. So in the, in the past, um, I always like to uh, equate it to um, a senior or higher tech artist is more like a sledgehammer for for an art director, but an art director is more like a chisel, right? Um, <laughs> because the, the primary role of a tech artist is to be the bridge between uh, the creative and the technical. 
uh, and find uh, efficiencies along the way. And uh, the tool set that we use is obviously uh, working really closely with the artists, but also doing a lot of scripting and pipeline work. Um, but you can imagine that uh, if at, at my previous roles of uh, director of tech art, my job was to support the team and create a safe path for the game to achieve the art director's vision. And so it, it literally is like taking a giant, you know, uh, sledgehammer and smacking things out of the way and and chiseling off the, the parts that are just not going to work and creating the workflows that are going to help to refine down that that piece of stone so that the art director can go, okay, you know, like you, you, you made me a great example uh, of a way that we can make a nose and it's super, super efficient. Now I can do the rest of the body and, and I have the sign off that it's all going to be able to be delivered okay. Right. So that's the analogy that I kind of give it is, is really our job is to make sure that things are viable, things can be efficient, and they can be at high quality. Okay. So what are the skills that a tech artist needs to needs to have? Like what is your day to day tool set or yeah, skill set, what you need? Um, so I, I think it's good to answer like even the specialization at this point because um, I've, I've kind of done them all. And so that's what's helped me to be director of tech art at Pixelmatic, but it kind of breaks down into multiple areas. And, and also there's a little bit of gray area between a tech artist and a technical animator. Um, so so there's, there's a bunch of different types of tech art roles that can be supported through a game. Um, you could certainly be a generalist, but there is a lot of specialization when it comes to games. So you would, you would generally have a tech artist that is uh, specializing in lighting and rendering and shading and a little bit of optimization. You could also have a tech artist that strictly does tools and pipelines. Uh, and you could also have a tech artist that does largely sim and cloth and physics. It really depends on what your game needs and uh, what kind of uh, goals and pillars that you want to support for the game. And then furthermore, like you could have technical animator, right? And a technical animator is uh, a, more of a hybrid between uh, a, a high-end rigger and animator and somebody that can actually support the game and the runtime systems for making characters move or uh, cutscenes. So that's kind of how tech art can be divided. Uh, it's not just like a, a one-trick pony, right? Like you, you actually have a lot of options in tech art to be able to choose your path. Uh, and that's what I also found so interesting about the role, right? And uh, what actually has kept me in that role for 15 years until I decided to go back to art and really leverage those skills as well as my art skills to do the director level stuff. So would you say that it's pretty beneficial to be an or that you have been an artist before becoming a tech artist? Uh, definitely. Like the, the in, in the industry... Um, Programmers always joke about programmer art, right? When they're trying to prototype a game is is like, oh yeah, I got this thing attacking this this other unit and it's two cubes, one is red and one is blue fighting. So there is definitely like a benefit to being an artist <laughs> first. Um, and and I and then like I said, is I think most of the reason why I got into this is because I just want to make my life easier, just just my life easier doing the kind of things that I enjoyed in art but you find that everybody's in the same boat and could really benefit from your knowledge. And so it, it, it just becomes a natural transition, right? Okay, so 
can you give us a, a, a short glimpse of what aspects of being a technical artist um, dip into the art side? Um, so, so yeah, within those few um, specialties that I listed, uh, one example is uh, number of materials and number of draw calls that you would have. And that is very closely related to how you actually create your models and how you actually uh, divide up the kinds of things that are on that model, whether it's clothing, whether it's skin. Um, and so like as, as an artist, that's, that's where it comes in really useful because you can interpret uh, a design and you can also look at it from the perspective of like, okay, um, I want to have metal and I want to have uh, some kind of leather, but I know that these, these two things, they're going to need to have different light values. And then I have to also think about color and then how all these, these things marry together. Um, and so like, that's where your, your crossover starts to happen and you start to care more about not only the aesthetic, but, um, how, how many materials am I going to be using in a uh, substance painter and how much is that going to make it more complicated for an artist to grab from a consistent palette? And then furthermore, like, how am I going to separate all of these material palettes amongst different types of characters so that I could um, explain them as different types of factions or um, even different types of classes? Um, so so it, it very quickly can rabbit hole, but that's like one example of like how much tech artists think further ahead and keep the art vision in mind, right? Um, in most of the games that I've made, uh, team color, for example, is a great example um, mm -hmm. where, where like you need to not only think about the art, but you also need to think about how uh, the gameplay is going to be uh, visible for the player and uh, easily recognizable for what is friend, what is foe. Uh, and so all these types of things come into play once you start to think about all of the, the finer details about what you're making for the game and how it communicates gameplay. Okay, because that's what, what my next question would have been. As you have worked on several str strategic games, what is here really important to look out for when, when it comes to technical art? Uh, performance. Uh, because performance okay yeah, strategy games uh the the holy grail of strategy games or large massive multiplayer online games is creating the illusion of epic battle and and mm -hmm. usually that means a lot of units or a lot of a lot of stuff on screen not just um like characters or vehicles but uh again when we think about everything that goes into a game. Um, my job doesn't end as a tech artist or even now as a director of art thinking about like a pretty picture. It, it starts with, okay, we want to have this soldier, but it ends with that soldier. Um, there's going to be a hundred of them. They all need to animate and they're going to all possibly like be sprayed in blood and die on the screen at the same time and how how what is that going to do to your pc and your video card like that that's that's an example of like mm -hmm. how much we need to think about and um once that's just one unit right so when you think about the buildings around it or in the case of a spaceship um it's the same thing as like how much how much weaponry is being fired in this crazy battle where you're just seeing tracers go everywhere that is how how far we need to think about and so 
when when you make the distinction between a tech artist and an artist and artists their their craft is to make that one or set of things super pretty uh, a tech artist's jobs is is to help support that help to make that s- as smooth as possible go into the game but also look at the bigger picture of like okay that one artist is making this unit or these units and this other artist is making the other five and then how are these all going to come together and actually still work okay so it's like very important for the performance when it comes to those big battle games mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay so how do you find the right balance there like wh- what is too much what is too less when it comes to the right balance between technical and the art side so what is your what is your goal as an as a being a technical artist um like i was saying before i think there's a lot of things that go into that decision um it takes a lot of pre-production prototyping uh, effort where there's a very close uh, knit of creative people, including the director, uh, the art director and the the principal technical artist or uh, director of tech art. And what you do there is you start from a concept and you start to dissect it of what is important to the vision and what creates the emotion most often and supports the gameplay the most. Um, so you don't usually jump into creating a game with just uh, doing all the bells and whistles because that's kind of like uh, a recipe for disaster, right? Um, you, you start with what the vision is and then you you hopefully target where you think that you want to be in terms of not only your competitors, but what supports the gameplay. And then you start from there and then you hopefully push it towards being more on the performance side as you go. But we definitely don't start at, you know, everything is photoreal. Uh, you pick a style that not only complements the, the, the IP that you're making, but also one that you think that you can you can maximize uh, in certain areas that are important to the type of game that you're trying to sell, right? So there, especially with teams that have experience, this is, this is a little bit easier to do. But when you approach making your game, um, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos on, on this as well, and they're absolutely right, is... is You really need to think about the kind of game that you're making and the effort that you're putting in based on the limitations of the team and the type of resources you have, but also the kind of performance and timeline that you have. And so um, I think a a great place to start for, for most people that are trying to learn about performance is not necessarily on the high end. If you're thinking about making a game, if you're thinking about making a performing, a, form, a performing and efficient asset, you can certainly start on the higher end. But um, mid poly and low poly is really a great learning experience in most of today's engines for understanding how tech art works. Okay, so you would say that like for mid poly and low poly, try to get as much as out of it as you can with the limitations. Yeah, like this. This kind of goes back to. Um, not this gen or even last gen of consoles because PC is pretty robust these days, right? But um, I wouldn't jump into and jump in like feet first into the higher end. Uh, still learn about the foundational things that make a game efficient before you kind of work your way backwards instead um, because it, it all comes down to like what's the core of Uh, building a game and what is uh, the the best decision making to make the most amount of flexibility to 
kind of go deep on certain areas where you really care and you want to spend the performance. So what advice would you give young people who want to say, oh, I'm pretty interested in becoming a tech artist or in, in this kind of direction? What is your, the, approach now, the approach nowadays? Um, I think it's always inspired by one area that they're already in. So whether it's animation or whether it's um, uh, vehicle modeling, right? Um, don't don't necessarily put too much pressure on yourself and, and go uh, think that you need to create a fully-fledged game. But um, go slowly through what interests you, and that will keep you coming back to learning more. So, for example... Um, a lot of uh, the industry is moving over to Blender, and there's a lot of uh, tools in Blender that uh, allow you to explore many different styles of things that can also be really interesting for tech artists. And right now, like on, on Infinite Fleet, we do like a lot of hard ops. And so like hard ops is a great way to not only learn uh, about how to make uh, Uh, an efficient amount of LODs for a hard surface object, but it's also a good way to like segue into like, okay, I'm going to start to learn more about LODs and then put them into any of the engines that you can, that you can grab these days, whether it's, um, whether it's unity or whether it's unreal or any other one. Right. But, but like have a short term goal and, and not have like it be too grand, but be it part of a small project that gives you exposure to something that could grow, right? So in the hard ops example, you could very well make a spaceship or a tank. Um, you can make one of them. You can make it super high detailed. You can learn about normal maps and, and LODs. And then you can even, without putting any type of gameplay on it and animation, put that model into a game and spawn as many as you can and have them running from point A to point B. <laughs> And you'll quickly learn about like, oh, I'm, I'm watching like the performance bars and it's it's really like slowing down, you know, mm -hmm, and then you'll start mm -hmm. to learn about frame rate and you'll start to learn about overdraw and all these things that are really important as a foundational learning for games. Right. But the but the trap is, is seeing the the glitz and glam of all of the AAA titles and jumping into I'm just going to make a super high res thing. And then expect that you've learned a lot about tech art and and what actually it means to make a game. Um, so so yeah, I, I think that's probably a good example of the best way to approach learning more about what you want to specialize in or or grow from in tech art. Okay, so what do you or how do you see the future of tech art? Where is this all? Where is this all going to? Um, With the next gen, for example. Well, next gen is largely doing remasters right now, right? Like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so like we're in the middle of a, a console cycle. We're we're obviously not uh, like PC is always just like blasting ahead, um, but it's going to take a little bit of time for the consoles to settle down uh, out of uh, the remaster mode. Um, and uh, start to really take advantage of the power of each of these consoles. Uh, and, and start cranking out more titles. So um, I, I think that uh, in the future, tech art is, is really going to be more important about supporting uh, the new high-end specs for all the consoles. But also, I think in terms of what um, the industry is going to see more of is 
a lot more procedural uh, content creation. So right now, like, again, another avenue to learn more about uh, tech art and uh, coding would be you could start to learn Houdini. Uh, and Houdini is a great way to not only uh, learn about node-based systems, but also learn about how you can create procedural levels. And something like procedural levels is really interesting to start to integrate into Unity and then uh, use either some marketplace assets or um, write some simple uh, code to generate your own levels and then run through them with their default players. So let's uh, talk about more uh, more about procedural. Like, would you say that in the future more and more things are made by the AI? Like, let's say an open world that is um, created completely procedural. How is your how are your thoughts on that? Um, at Pixelmatic, we definitely think that this is uh, the way that a lot of large scope games should move towards. So it's something that we're heavily thinking about right now because we're doing procedural space. We're also doing uh, a lot of things that can be equated to level design because we're making space stations and space stations actually use um, kits, which are, are sets of walls and platforms and uh, different types mm -hmm. of prop dressing. And... Um, We, we see that as also a way to uh, offload the amount of uh, staff that you need, right? It's like not everybody can afford to have um, teams of 100, but there are ways that procedural can help, especially if it fits the type of game that you make, uh, reduce the amount of uh, overhead for, for just like uh, the amount of artists that you need. Um, and in most cases, it allows you to create much more uh, variety. Right. So our space stations, some of our space stations are generated procedurally, whether they are on engine side or whether on content creation side. But procedural also just helps you to create, um, for example, like I could make um, 10 different space stations out of a composition of kits. And then I could choose one of them on, in, in Blender or in Maya and then refine that one down even more. And this is not like a new technique per se that has been used in the industry. A lot of games have, have done like uh, pre-randomization and then baking it down and then exporting it. Um, but it's a it's taking it one step further and, and having an algorithm and a system on, on the gameplay side that will help you do that too, right? So um, for Infinitely, we're doing not only uh, procedural uh, structures, but we're also doing procedural Uh, sp like space itself. So planets, stars, uh, black holes, these would all be part of our procedural system. Um, and, and in that way, it is pretty liberating because there's, is, it, it does create more work for engineering in terms of creating uh, a structure or a rule set. But once you have a good procedural system up and running, um, you can essentially just feed it new criteria. So maybe you could give us a short... Um, uh, uh, let's say let's call it a procedural for dummies. How does uh, the procedural work in game? So is it is it just random or is it? Yeah, just give us a a short introduction of it, maybe. Uh, it, I wouldn't say it's random. Um, there's a lot of yeah. front end. There's a lot of front end work that has to go into that uh, when it comes to the art side. And so like this is again where um, being an artist and a technical artist in the past has really helped me to guide uh, like 
our project at Pixelmatic is because I, I know uh, the advantages and disadvantages of doing certain paths, not just based on the aesthetic, right? So instead of um, having to be kind of like a art director and a tech art director, I kind of get to do both and I don't have to go through the hoops of um, various different challenges, right? I just make all the decisions myself. But a, a great example of, of how you would start on a procedural path and uh, how, as a, how you could learn more about tech art is um, just using a simple grid snap uh, and creating a bunch of platforms and walls and then defining for a rule set, like, okay, my grid snap is two meters, right? Or 10 meters, depending on what the object is. So in the case of um, I have um, a building that has stairs and has multiple rooms um, and then multiple pathways and doors, you you kind of can rip that apart and say, okay, I have um, changing in elevation, I have number of entrances and I have generally the idea of a room and it has to have a certain amount of uh, limitations in terms of footprint that I can predict uh, the kind of space that I can put together as well as how many faces it has that I could fit a door on, right? So so like that's a, a really simple exercise of taking away even on paper, like designers do this too, right? They do uh, paper design. Well, you could do the very similar thing for a procedural system is you could you could literally take a couple pieces of paper, you could cut them to be certain dimensions and you could say, okay, if my rooms are all uh, 10 meter by 10 meter, then I want my doors to be roughly uh, four meters wide because my players are going to be one meter wide as, as a bounding volume. And then you can start to create your rules that way, right? Um, and you'll see how quickly you, you'll run into limitations of not only shape, uh, but the kind of creativity that you, you would be um, allowed to use and then kind of adjust from there your paper diagram, right? Um, but if you can do it on, in paper in, in like 15 minutes, like th there's, there's nothing to say that as a tech artist or as uh, an artist who wants to get into tech art that you have to be in a 3D program. Uh, a lot of being a tech artist is planning and having the vision of all the types of challenges and problems that might come up and then kind of prioritizing them and solving them as you go. But there's nothing to say that you can't take a piece of paper and cut it up and do this type of exercise over half an hour. And you'd be a lot more informed before you jump into any 3D package and start making the meshes for it. And then further to that, creating the scripts and, and, and integrating it into an engine to do procedural stuff. So when doing procedural, how do you make sure it still looks good? Um, in terms of composition? Yeah, and in terms of aesthetics, like how do you make, how do you keep the, the quality? Like, let's say um, there are procedurally generated levels. How do you take the quality of each level or make sure that the quality of each level aesthetically looks good? Um, so there's a bunch of different tricks you can use, but I should probably say before I get into this that um, to some degree, like you can make things pretty, but if it doesn't service the game, then it's kind of useless. So so if we're not supporting uh, the design of the levels or the intent of the gameplay, then it's really just pretty art. And I'm a big believer after this many years of uh, uh, the difference between 
uh, beautiful art and functional art. And what I mean by functional art is that um, you can you can make an amazing uh, a simple example is you can make an amazing elaborate cathedral wall with a giant beautiful archway um, as a gateway to to a level, but if the door doesn't work, then what's the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> or if you can't render, yeah, yeah. then what's the point? So um, that being said, like um, the, there's many tricks to make things a little bit more canned, but also still be able to have the flexibility to reuse and make them procedural. And one of the ways that uh, we do it in the industry is we we have hero hero objects or like hero kit objects. And then we have more like secondary objects, which are really like the glue. Um, so you could imagine that in, you, you can make a hero object or a hero room of any size, especially if you want it to be a certain way and it's gonna be a certain experience for the player. So if, if for example, um, the bridge of, of a ship is the hero piece for a procedural um, ship layout, then you would make that very specifically, right? But all the hallways and the secondary rooms, like um, quarters or something like that, could be completely procedural. Um, so that's how we kind of like uh, skew the experience so that you can still make it aesthetically pleasing. And that's before you get into the nuances and the minutia of like what is in each room, what is the corridor made of, you know, um, how how what kind of composition is in in that room, and how does it direct the player to the console screen, or how does it direct the player to like a workstation or the the, the place where they do crafting? Like there there's a bunch of things that could go into all those decisions, but the long and short of it is is that you you segregate the things that are going to be not necessarily the mundane, but the things that you can leverage to create more space and make things more vast, and then you focus in on how those can easily connect to more. Um, canned experiences. Okay, so like in game production, there often is the case that there are like some, yeah, sometimes between an artist or a programmer, there, there are things that are happening because the artist wants to have it this way and the programmer wants to have it this way. Is this something that, especially as a tech artist, is sometimes hard for you to manage? Like um, where, because it's often hard to find a, a, a common way to, to solve a problem. Um, yeah, I think there's, this happens quite often, but, um, the, and there's different approaches to doing it depending on what stage of production you're in. Um, but in pre-pro or in prototyping, uh, we generally try to get all of these problems uh, like ahead, hit those problems well ahead of production. Uh, and we work closely in strike teams with engineers um, and art to make sure that things are efficient before we go too deep down one path. Uh, a, a great example of this like is is effects, right? Is Effects is usually with audio, the most underrated departments in terms of how much emotion and how much, uh, how much they bring to the table of completing the vision and the experience of a game. And uh, it, it usually comes at the end of a project uh, because everything is always like, go, 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 that we only do optimization uh, as we start to put these things in later. But um, this is one example of like doing a lot of those front end uh, ex uh, tests ahead of time with effects helps you to not only see right away what 
they look like and how much they can add to, say, for example, an attack or a special ability, but get them in front of engineers and see, okay, like how many particles am I using? Like, should I reduce the number of cards or emitters or anything like that? Right. So, so yeah, like that's, that's one example of just like how we try to assess things early and how there's, there's always a back and forth of like, well, I can make, I can make that smoke be more efficient if I reduce the number of particles, but uh, that means that I probably need to scale them up and, and like create more overlap, for example, and I'll get a very similar look, but at least it'll be more efficient. Okay. So this is, um, yeah, sometimes good for you to find the right decisions and the right solutions when those uh, things happen and to maybe address them in the beginning before, mm -hmm. before in production. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it does take a lot of teamwork. Right. So, so mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. again, something as simple as a smoke column or, or, or like for stuff that we're doing, like missile missiles and plasma beams and stuff like that, it really helps to have mini strike teams and have an engineer, a tech artist and an artist all looking at something and using, and, and the, the, the technical side and the engineer would use the tools for performance evaluation. But then you have those open discussions with the artists of like, okay, well, we think we can give you this, this much in terms of um, textures and this much in terms of particles. Can you go back and try to make it look good with this limitation, right? Okay, so there's, this is another tool set you need to have like the good communication between um the different, um, yeah, working people in the studio, right? Yeah, um, communication as a tech artist is critical because um, it's it's about conveying the most amount of shared information and unifying process um, so that there's consistency a lot. Um, and then you, you, you not only have to teach people a lot, but you have to also implement those, those learnings and all that into, uh, automation for the team. Right. Uh, and, and not only verbally, but you have to do it through, uh, documentation as well, because, uh, it, it's just creates a lot more foundation for a resource for people that are new to the project or maintaining consistency. Okay, so as you working remote, or especially the whole the whole studio is working remote over the world, how do you, or do you miss the studio life sometime when when especially when addressing these things? Well, I think we're in unique cases right now, obviously with COVID. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, like uh, working remote has been actually really amazing because I find that uh, when you're in studios, as much as you have uh, camaraderie and People are, are close to you and you can see them and you can communicate with them. Uh, I find that there, that with distributed teams, you really need to maximize the time that you have with each other. And you have to be super efficient and clear about what your goals are so that everything kind of um, goes lockstep, right? And, and runs smoothly. So um, I, I miss obviously like the, the coffee walks and the imp the impromptu discussions that you can have face to face and um, the, the, the presence of people and being able to like really interact with them. But on the flip side of things, I really think that uh, we get the same amount of bonding with the amount of technology for communication that there is out there today. 
and there's a lot more benefit to um, really enforcing that things need to be thoroughly thought out. And even when you schedule a meeting, it's important that meeting is valuable um, because there needs to be something that comes out of it because you're, you're going to break up into your time zones, you're going to break up into your disciplines, and that's really going to be twofold what helps in the success of delivering on your deadlines and the project as a whole. Okay. So thank you, Wayne, for the big insight on tech art. Is there anything you want to add to your conversation or to our conversation? Uh, no, I'm, I'm just really excited for you guys to um, see what we're doing um, on Infinite Fleet. We're doing a lot of technical things, whether it's, um, like I said, this procedural space, procedural space stations. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of uh, exploration in hybrid tune shading and post-processing. And we're also doing a lot of things with decals and optimization for level of details of our ships because we're going to have tons of uh, huge battles with enemies uh, as well. So it, it is a very interesting technical endeavor to do this project. You can find out more about the game at infinitefleet.com and at infinitefleet on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, and you can definitely reach out to me if you guys have any questions about tech art or about Infinite Fleet or Pixelmatic. Uh, at Wayne Wong Chong on Twitter is probably the best place to reach me. I will I will put all the information in the in the info back in the info box for you guys. So when are you releasing Infinite Fleet? Is there is there like do you have any any date for us? Uh, we're we're doing uh, an alpha uh, close to the end of the year. Uh, and then we're going to start to work towards a release okay. date. But uh, right now we're hard at work at uh, wrapping up the, the first pass of the game and uh, letting the public get their hands on it very soon. Um, but the close alpha would be close to the end of the year. Okay. So thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Christoph, for having me. And take care and stay healthy. Yeah, everybody stay safe out there. Bye. Bye-bye.